Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern and as always on Close Reads, I am joined by Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. Angelina and Tim, how's it going? It's going good, David. It's going good, David. We got some complaints. There's an echo in here. <laughs> now you know how I, I resisted. I resisted. Uh, <laughs> oh, Just call my me narcissist. There's my echo. <laughs> we need somebody to come in here with like a like some kind of sound effect every time someone does a bad dad joke. Um, so uh, like the uh, what's this, the SNL skit with Debbie Downer every time she says something negative they have that like sound effect <laughs> exactly <Yeah>. exactly <laughs> I knew you two were cultured people uh, <laughs> half of us are <laughs> so we uh, so so we got some complaints last week that there wasn't enough uh, small talk and a banter on the show even though there was secret banter midway through um so secret, we, we had secret banter. Well, Matt Bianco came on. So, oh, 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 yeah. No, that was the banterless intermission. <laughs> <laughs> he came in and sucked all the banter out of the room. The, the interlude. <laughs> so should we give the people what they want and give them more banter and talk about some some nonsense or something in our lives, or should we just dive right? I mean, what do you, what do you think? See, should okay, I, no, but you banter us about you bantering. Me up for failure, David. I feel like banter has to be spontaneous, and the second you're like they want it, you have to give it to them. My mind just went blank, and I'm starting <laughs> to fall asleep now. <laughs> See, part of this comes back to kind of like show design because we we. <laughs> There is no show design it, aside from turn the mics on and get the three of us around those mics. Because well, my, but my show design about seventy five percent of the time. <laughs> that's it. That, you know what? I need to take that back. Like I know that David does a ton of work on the back end that Angelina and I never see. But I'm just kidding. I don't even read the books. I'm cliff's notes my way through. The <laughs> She's like on Spark Notes scrolling through. There oh yeah, and then I in got chapter- Spark Notes up right now. <laughs> I have some interesting essay questions right here. That yeah, right. Would, should we should we all take a quiz on this section? <laughs> we should. So, Tim, what, what were you going to say? Well, I was going to say, for me, I like banter. I don't like to front load the banter. Oh, I like I to kind of like it all. Tim and I are in total disagreement on this. Yeah, we're just we're just in different places on this. And you I just I like the appetizer. You cannot jump into the main course. And I agree, but I just think that the appetizer is the book under through? discussion. No, 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 no. No, I think the appetizer is the book under discussion. That's the appetizer. Oh, and it's also the entree, but oh, some of the um, the relish and the, the gravy. No, 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 it's, it's really clinging together. Here's like the, here's so the, much stuffing. It's your, it's your appetizer. The noodles are the main course. Tim, I'm not buying this. <laughs> Never taking me out to dinner ever. <laughs> I just, have you ever been? Have you never been to like a twelve-course meal, like a like a chef's tasting thing? They have appetizers all throughout. 
We need That's an what... opening act. Let's just change metaphors. The, the, the food thing has confused him. We need an opening act. <laughs> okay, let's... We can discuss, like, meta design of the show. Like, you know, in another podcast. I do have something to talk about, about kind of where I am standing in this very moment. I have podcasted for this show in a whole host of different locales. I don't remember if I podcasted from Aruba. I think we skipped when I was in Aruba. No, no we did one. Was I? Okay, so I've, wow. so I've podcasted from Aruba. A lot of Mai Tais happening that week. I <laughs> <laughs> didn't even remember the show. <laughs> I thought for some reason that we postponed one when I, I was think, in Aruba. I think we postponed one, but we also did one there. I remember you, our listeners will be able to tell us Exactly. Oh, yeah. Now I remember. Now I remember. Okay. And so I've podcasted from Colorado. I've podcasted from Iowa City. I've podcasted. Today I am podcasting from my friend Josiah Martin's wood shop in Eugene, Oregon. And literally, I'm standing amid circular saws and two by fours and speed squares. Everything is like has a thin patina of sawdust over it. And I'm just wandering around amidst all these two by fours and trim pieces and chop saws and jigsaws. It's a remarkable place to do a podcast about a very um, delicate novel. Yeah, you're in the wrong book. (laughs) It's... Well, I mean, it ain't that, it ain't Ayn Rand. I mean, you know, there was that climax in this section in the woodshed, but you know, <laughs> with the wood chipper, the uh, the, oh, yeah. the woodshed could be could be uh, you know on the Howard's End property though, and maybe Mark covered it and had some kind of like metaphysical experience while wandering amongst all your sawdust. No, all right. Okay, amen. So, uh, amen. <laughs> so now that our banter about banter is done, uh, we are here to talk about Howard's End, as we have sort of implied, Ian Forrester's novel. We are here to talk about chapters 31 through... Hey, Angelina, what are we going through this time? 36, because I can follow directions, even though Tim <laughs> cannot. I have to say, that was very humorous when Tim group texted us and said, guys, do we have to stop at 35? I think we should go to 36. But come on, after you got to 35, didn't you, like, no, if we ended at 35, funny, we'd though, be in trouble. No, but what was funny is that David had made, like, five different points of telling me we were going to read through 36. Including on uh, last week's show. Including on the show. And I was like, wow, Whoops. Tim just zones out when David says my name. I did. That's what's happened. He's like, no, that's not it. Click. Like, that's it. He stopped That's not it. It's like, oh, Angelina's talking. I can take a break now. (laughs) (laughs) True. (laughs) Well, we're here to talk about chapters 31 through 36. And just quickly, just to clarify by way of announcement, we are going to make an adjustment. We we had talked about doing two more episodes after this. What we're actually going to do is we're going to finish the book for next week's episode because it's just, it just makes too much sense with the amount of chapters that are left and with some of the things that are going to happen and are are in the midst of happening at the end of this section. So for next week, the episode that's going to go up on like March 2nd, I think, uh, we'll be be finishing the book and then we'll do our Q&A episode after that and we'll do some bonus content for the Patreon people. Um, 
So if you want to get some bonus content on uh, movie tie-in discussions, the TV show, things like that, make sure you are on the Patreon. Uh, that you're supporting us on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash close reads to learn about how you can do that. Every level, I think, gets access to the Patreon bonus episodes. Um, and also, of course, this episode is brought to, uh, brought to you by a friend of ours or an organization that is a friend of ours. That is the Honors College at Belmont Abbey. Where you can you and your, or your students can join a group of morally and intellectually serious young men and women seeking wisdom in our great books curriculum. Uh, with a number of flexible options, the Honors College allows you to take any major offer to Belmont Abbey while exploring the greatest works by the most brilliant philosophers, poets, theologians, and historians in the Western tradition. The distinctive approach affords you the opportunity to participate in the highest form of friendship, a shared life dedicated to the pursuit of wisdom. Do you guys remember what the website is you can go to for this? Let's see, see how well you're listening when I do these ad reads. What, what are your... www.belmontabbey.edu. BAC.edu is what it is, slash ah. honors for more information. So again, that's uh, ah. just to clarify. Okay, I'm not going to take credit for being a good listener. That's my son's email address. <laughs> <laughs> so just to clarify so that no one's confused, that is, again, that's BAC.edu slash honors. At the, at the Honors College at Belmont Abbey, our life well-lived awaits you. So if you are a student who is thinking about college, check out Belmont Abbey. Check out the Honors College. I know Angelina is happy And it's so pretty. It. It's so pretty. Go over there and walk around. Yeah. If, yeah. Take a visit if you can. Um, at least check out the website. Check Actually, out the my program. son is the person who gives the tours. Totally go. Just to meet <laughs> him. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be interesting if someone's on a tour and they're like, I know your, I, I know your mom's voice. <laughs> He'd that be like, would oh, not the show, huh? He rolls with anything. He's the best firstborn ever. He just rolls. <laughs> that's his whole life model. I just roll with it. <laughs> that is good. That's a good, that's probably just firstborn or not. That's probably a good life motto. Um, speaking of rolling with it, um, some characters have to roll with some things in these, uh, these chapters yes. of, of Howard's End. Oh, so wait, we're not going to get the, what's exactly, is there a plot in this book? We're not going to get that from you this time, Tim? Like you're excited there's a plot? That's, that's what you're I like. Am. I am. I like, am. Oh, I'm totally excited there's a plot. So, so Tim, has <laughs> you... It only took 35 chapters to get Tim excited. Hey, Tim, has your, <laughs> no, <I've... laughs> has your affection for the book grown? It has. It, it definitely did, has then. during this. Wait, what did you do there? Oh, never mind. Go on. <laughs> oh, it all turns on that, David. Yes, it now does. I get it. Um, yeah, my, my, I think once we discovered that there was this um, mistress kind of looming in the background of Mr. Wilcox's life, there, I was hoping that it was going to be an event that kind of moved the characters. Mm -hmm. And although there's no obvious relationship between like what happened in our last reading and what happened with Helen in this reading, it does seem like, um, yeah, for me, the book has got a lot of traction now. And I, I, that sounds like, that sounds critical. I, I really do think the writing is lovely. I'm really, I've been really intrigued by the book, but I've just not known, I've just not known where we were going. I feel like now I know where we're going. Hmm. We talked last week about how this drama sort of happens and then was the book going to sort of be consistent with the pattern that that had evolved or kind of revealed itself throughout the first 
I don't know, two thirds of the book where we yeah. jump, get these big jumps in time. And, and it right. did, it didn't all. it? And yeah, it's it exactly did. what happened. We all Wedding sudden, was off stage. Yep. Yeah, there was no more drama. It just said, then time moved on. They got along. They got married. Did it jump to two years ahead after the marriage? Was that the jump? I don't Is that really? Was it that far? I thought it was less. I thought, I thought Maybe it was, it was less. I thought it was like eight months. Eight months? Eight months. Okay. The two years. Yeah, that's some, sorry. That's somewhere else. I figured out why that's happening, but I can't say it until we get to the end. But when I got to the end, I thought, oh, that's why he's doing it. I get it now. I get it. Huh. I know huh. what's happening. Angelina. Because Angelina, you have finished the book. I did. She's just going to sit you, here the whole episode. But I'm not going to say anything. I mean, I, yeah. I'm, I'm just going to give you the thoughts I had when I got to 36. Yeah, you're got just going to mock all of Tim's thoughts. <laughs> I'm going to do that anyway. Thoughts. Oh, okay. Well, look, I got the spark notes up here. It's hard to not see the end. <laughs> right, right. So let's go Tricks to the beginning of, the of Let's go to the beginning of 31 because uh, Forrester does some things here with I think some some metaphors that are kind of baked into the story that is really interesting in terms of um, setting tone and you know giving us more under the surface with you know with subtlety than than uh, you get in a lot of books where they're right all up in your face about stuff. Um, Angelina, could you read the first paragraph of chapter thirty one for us? Mm-hmm. Houses have their own ways of dying falling as variously as the generations of men, some with tragic roar, some quietly, but to an afterlife in the city of ghosts, while from others, and thus was the death of Wickham Place, the spirit slips before the body perishes. It had decayed in the spring, disintegrating the girls more than they knew, and causing either to accost unfamiliar regions. By September, it was a corpse, void of emotion, and scarcely hallowed by the memories of 30 years of happiness. Through its round-topped doorway passed furniture and pictures and books until the last room was gutted and the last van had rumbled away. It stood for a week or two longer, open-eyed, as if astonished at its own emptiness. Then it fell. Navies came and split it back into the gray. With their muscles and their very good temper, they were not the worst of undertakers for a house which had always been human and had not mistaken culture for an end. That last phrase is really interesting. Had not mistaken culture for an end. I okay, you guys. Yep. I want to know what, I don't know what he means. Which part? Which part? The very last thing he had, and had not mistaken culture for an end. It's a means. The house mistaken. is a means. Culture, Cult- culture is a means. Culture is, is a means. It's like to, you know, to a, to a human, to being more fully human. It's not the mm. end in itself. I'm fascinated by the way he creates this sort of personification because, well, the personification happens at the beginning, right? With the houses have their own ways of dying, but it sort of builds up to the house almost having agency. Like the house dying is sort of something happening to the house, but in the end, the house almost has a mind of its own. It's got agency to make decisions almost Um, like it, it can think and process information and, and, really be alive so it starts with the house dying but by the end of the paragraph we're talking about what the house is what the house had been like when it was alive and so why does why do you think he begins or, or what's the what's the purpose of this 
or the or maybe just the effect of this paragraph um, as we get into this section where we are suddenly being told that time has passed and they're married again or that they're married. So we get at the end of 30, Helen, you know, does what she can to help Leonard ends up being even richer than she was, which we talked about last week and the, all the Margaret Henry drama happens, but then all of a sudden we're moving ahead. But before we get to the point where he tells us, well, in the end they were okay for a while and they got married. He gives us this bit about the house dying. What is the effect of that? Do you think Angelina, I'll let you take that first. Well, I thought again, it, it, it draws attention to the fact that the title of the book is a house yeah. and that mm-hmm. house has, is, is central to this whole storyline, both plot wise and symbolically, um, because, you know, all, all roads are, I mean, especially in this section, right? Fate is just bringing her to Howard's in like this, you know, no, this is a mistake. Don't unpack my stuff. Right. And yeah. it's all the, the force of fate is just pushing them in, into this house. Um, and so the houses do have this central personality in here. And one of the things I thought about in this section was, was what it meant metaphorically that Mr. Wilcox wants to build a new house, especially in the context of modern homelessness and the civilization of luggage and all the comments he's been making about that and, and how Margaret experiences this existential angst because she has no connection to any place, right? And so she's paralyzed with the decision before, before the marriage about where to live because they keep saying, well, just pick a place, any place, just what place seems nice, right? But she doesn't have mm-hmm. any real connection to any place. And so she's paralyzed in that decision. And so I felt like, that, you know, Mr. Wilcox with building a house, that, that seems liberating to him in some way because he wants to exert, he's the kind of man who wants to exert control over his environment. Margaret's not that way. Um, so I thought about that. I thought about how he complains about all of the old houses, that they're damp or they're too small. He makes a big deal about damp. We're all going to die and catch a cold. And it's almost like these houses are his enemy in a way. He he sees them as being problematic. Hmm. Yeah. There yeah. was just a lot Problems of conversation solved. between them. Yeah. Every, every house had a problem. Oh, no, dear. You wouldn't want to live there. I, why not? Because it's damp. Oh, yeah. It's the first time oh, yeah. I've heard of it being damp. And so every... every the houses he's complaining are too small or they don't have good light or they're too damp and too expensive to keep up and you can't improve them and so for a mr wilcox it's much easier just to build a new house and again as americans or to tear it down is, or to tear it down as, as americans because that is our mindset it doesn't strike us the kind of character mr wilcox would seem in in the setting of this book right but in england where old homes matter. They are not torn down. They are restored lovingly that you marry somebody just for their money. So you can dump their money into saving the house that people are born with a sense of responsibility to a house. (laughs) And then they spend their whole life trying to restore the house. I mean, that's the history of the English aristocracy right there. You know, they feel committed to these houses. So the idea that Mr. Wilcox is is very modern, just tear it down and build something new kind of guy that's very antithetical to the ideas in this book and also to Margaret because her house is being torn down to make way for some new ugly flats. So it just highlighted the difference between those two again. And, and of course, foregrounds the idea that something's being lost, something good is being lost. I mean, you don't use the word dying mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. typically right. in, a, in an optimistic way. I mean, you could, a revolutionary, I guess, would say, yay, the old ways are dying, but that's, mm-hmm. that's not the tone of this book. Tim, do you have anything to add to that about this section? No, no. I thought the first thing that I thought when you asked the question is what Angelina said. You know, the title of our book is Howard's End. And yeah, I think the dying of the house is kind of a a nod to that. No, I, I Angelina said it better than I could. It's interesting how it seems to place 
disintegration of place sort of on par with disintegration of persons. Um, Cause as these relationships, you know, we're about to get this section where, you know, I mean, I don't want to spoil too much, but there's just this, this sense of, of relationships are on edge, right? Like they could fall apart. Like if they're not, like what's the foundation of these relationships? That seems to be one of the big questions. Yeah. Um, like, is there a firm foundation of the relationship between Margaret and Helen such that it will endure, you know, mm-hmm. various disintegrations and what's the foundation of Helen and I mean, Mar- sorry, Margaret and um, Henry's relationship and is, and is it strong enough to endure? Um, and there's all kinds of other relationships that are sort of, sort of, uh, mirroring tenuous tenuous yeah and so it seems like you know even where it says that um the house had decayed in the spring disintegrating the girls more than they knew and causing either to accost unfamiliar regions um that there's the correlation between disintegration of place and disintegration of person but i'm wondering if this line about had not mistaken culture for an end if we're not getting some word play here on end that's tied to the title of the book oh Uh, maybe so I, I mean, that. the end is a common word, but it also seems, you know, it's ending that paragraph that seems to be a very precisely written sentence, a precisely written paragraph. Do you think mm-hmm. that, how might that, this idea of culture being an end um, or a means play into that, what you were talking about there, Angelina? Well, I think that's very, uh, that's very perceptive. I hadn't thought of that, but I think it's true because... Howard's end is not just the place that the book is centered around, but it's named the end. And it is, we don't know how the book is going to end, but, but since he you starts don't know, off, I mean, you do know how it's going to end. <laughs> I, but I would say this, even if I didn't know how it was going to end right. at the beginning, we know that she leaves that Mrs. Wilcox leaves the house to Margaret. We know that that's thwarted. He tells us at the very beginning, the narrator does that don't, don't get too worried. This is all going to work out in the end. Right. So there is this sense in which everything is pushing her toward Howard's end, which is the end. Right. Which is yeah, where the yeah. plot is going. Yeah. Him, you know, you know what, yeah, sorry. you know what I'm curious about is at the beginning of the book, Margaret, but especially Helen does seem to think that culture is an end and that shifts a little bit, at least for the reader when um, Margaret and Mrs. Wilcox become friends. And at least for me, I kind of perceive Mrs. Wilcox as a woman whose home would not mistake culture for an end. You know, it had a different purpose. Hmm. Um, but now, especially considering the recent events, which we, we just have to talk about those at some point. Yeah, we, we have can, to warn our readers. Spoiler. I mean, uh, I think if the title of the podcast is 31 through 36, I mean, I think if you listen yeah. to the podcast, the presumption is you, you read it. I don't think we have to worry about spoiling it. No, yeah, that's not really what I meant. So yeah, go ahead. Oh, so you can talk oh. anything in this section or before you can talk about. We find out that Helen has been avoiding Margaret and Tibby. They've been wanting to meet up with her. She's been abroad and then she comes back from being abroad and she won't meet up with them and she won't even leave a forwarding address where they can come visit her. And there's even questions about whether or not she's gone mad because this is so unlike her. And so through Mr. Wilcox, a little bit of a, not a little bit, a deception is played. And Margaret and Mr. Wilcox and a doctor 
kind of spring a trap for Helen to show up at Howard's Inn to retrieve her books. And when she's there, Margaret steps into the room where uh, Helen is to discover that Helen is very pregnant. And this is, and so that in turn causes, um, Margaret has to make up her mind, it feels like to her right there about, it almost feels like there's an allegiance question being asked of her in that moment. And she most definitely sides with her sister and whether or not siding with her sister and not with Mr. Wilcox is going to be in, how do you say it, an irrevocable choice remains to be seen. But it feels, it, it feels to me like there's a certain amount of finality to the choice. I haven't read it at the end of the book, so I don't really know. But No, she says, though, but in 36, she says that she's fighting for women against men. Yeah. A new feeling came over her. She was fighting for women against men. She did not care about rights, but if men came into Howard's Inn, it should be over her body. Mm. I cheered. I ain't going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> that whole chapter had me cheering. I actually, you know, it's funny because, I mean, at the risk of alienating 99% of our listeners. Uh, oh, I just did it. Go ahead. <laughs> no, well, no. I, I actually think that without that, the chapter would have been stronger. Because I think it, I think that it, I mean, if you agree with that, like if you agree with, if you agree with it, you're going to cheer, right? But it also is like, it lacks the subtlety that I think so much of the book that makes so much of the book so good. Well, no, but I think, I think, okay, so, so, well, this gets into a lot of the subtle motifs that have been building within Margaret, but I, yeah. I, I think it fits because Margaret has not just, she has, she has denied her voice and who she is all these chapters. That's why last week I talked about how disappointed I was in her. And I was so proud of her in that chapter because she finally finds her voice and she finally stands up for what she knows is right. And this is, this is not a situation in which men need to come and have control over what happens to help them. Tim, I think we need more women in this conversation. I feel like maybe you and I should just leave and find a woman to have this conversation. I, Is there anyone that, in the office? Struggle, right? uh, this doctor who doesn't know Helen, Mr. Reddit. Wilcox, who doesn't really know Helen or like Helen, they, are, they have taken it upon themselves, and then they bring Charles into it, to be the people who are going to make the decisions for Helen about Helen's own life. Mm-hmm. And so that's why, that's why it's a bigger issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, so much of what he's saying, Forrester, in these chapters is, is a huge social commentary um, that goes way beyond the characters in this book. I mean, it's quite, course, yeah. it was quite mm-hmm. shocking and, and just really revolutionary. And I was really kind of taken aback by how bold he was in these chapters with, with what he's taking on. I mean, and, and Margaret saying things like, who is society to judge her for this? And why do, why do they get to make the decisions for, for what's happening? And just her whole inner inner dialogue about that and about how you know Henry can have an indiscretion walk away and have ruined the woman and and it's nothing to him but but Helen has to she's going to have to carry all of the price of this forever it's not something she can walk away from and okay so i um i i have a question do you think are are we is it beyond a shadow of a doubt the right shall we say moral choice for her to side with her sister instead of her husband. Huh. Um, not, not, and I don't, Angelina, I don't mean this like, uh, 
would you make the same decision or or whatever? Like, I feel like those are like, that's a different question we can talk about in a minute. Um, like, or do we sympathize with her? Like, that's a different, that's not what I'm asking to start. I'm also not trying to say that the only perspective that makes something right or wrong is this like fundamental, like sort of looking at it on a very fundamental level like this. But what do you think? I mean, is there, is there a case to be made that she actually maybe was doing the wrong thing, even if she was sort of doing the right thing at the same time? in in uh in responding to to henry the way she did or is it just there's no there's no situation in which you would say that she was um she should have sort of acquiesced to henry i wondered if that question was going to come up uh, and i the reason i thought about it ahead of time is because i don't think i can answer it within the chapters that we read because it it ends on that moment our chapters mm. end yeah, on that right, moment right right yeah so we're, we don't get to see immediately what happens after. And so I feel like I can't answer, I can't answer the question without revealing what happens as a result of it. Yeah. And, and that's one of the reasons why, I mean, I think one of the reasons why it's an interesting question within, without knowing what comes next is because you have to put yourself in her shoes in the moment. Hmm. And you have to kind of try to get, gain that perspective and try to, you know, that's a great story. It forces you to, you know, put yourself in the shoes choose. of the person in a, when they're in a dilemma. What, am, yeah. what would I choose the same thing? Would I choose something else? And, um, well, all right, I, we can, we can play that then. I, I don't, I don't mind being crazy and saying the crazy things. Well, I don't, I don't know. So I don't ask the, the reason I kind of um, hedged a little bit on the question is simply because I don't know that there is a crazy answer to this. I mean, the crazy answer is maybe she should have pulled out a 17th century, uh, like, uh, tribal spear and stabbed him in the, in the throat that's probably the crazy answer but i think other than that i don't know that there's a crazy answer to this like I don't that think was my answer options. no <laughs> all right well yeah, that would have been crazy okay um, so all right so here's a few thoughts all right yeah. so so we'll just we'll just throw that out there and um, the reason i said i was like this is one of those moments where i kind of like could a woman have asked that question because i don't want to be like i don't want to like stand up for the patriarchy that's not at all what i'm suggesting when i ask oh i question. would never think you were you were doing that <laughs> Tim, are you saying Tim would? Is that what you're I'm just going to leave the show right now. There goes David for the patriarchy again. I'm done. Can we just read some female authors already? Uh, or some strong female characters. Like, you're killing me here, David. All right. So I think we have to look at the chapters building up. I was up until chapter 35, ready to set this book on fire. I was so mad at Mr. Wilcox, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I underlined so much of this. He's condescending to her. She has completely lost her sense of self. He's so proud of the fact that she will just, if he looks like he might need something, she's going to stop whatever she's doing and, and tend to him. Like he is, he, he and his needs are completely dominating their relationship. She's a showpiece to him. He talks about how he likes that she reads. It looks impressive to the other guys. I mean, oh man, did I want to punch him in the face? Really? Her intelligence is there to make you look good? Like that's the purpose of it. Everything, everything about his behavior toward her was infuriating. And, and I felt like it happened because she did not make the right decision earlier, right? Like she, she chose to protect him from the consequences of his own actions, writing that letter, making everything go away, forgiving him out of hand without requiring any show of repentance, or at the very least, make him articulate, I know adultery is wrong, and I know I cheated on that wife, but I promise I won't cheat on my current wife, which I just feel like is a minimum assurance a woman needs. Like, please tell mm -hmm. me no, that cheating is not okay before I marry you. But mm -hmm. she didn't, right? She right. just washes it all away, and it's like it never happened. And so he just steps right into that role of, I can just do whatever. And she's just there for me. And he seems happy and she seems less of a person. So 
I feel like what happens in that's that a, moment. Man, that is an interesting claim that you just made there. Wait, what's an interesting claim? She Maybe. seems claim and she seems less of a person. Oh, yeah. I think he's happy and she's less of a person. What do you mean by she's less of a person? Where is the Margaret of the first three-fourths of this book? Where but is, is she? In this but why does, that, why does that make her less of a person? Does, in my mind, like that complicates her and makes her more like human. Like it makes her more interesting as a character. Like I more... feel like she has lost her sense of self. She, I feel like she lost her sense of self the moment she chose to overlook all of his indiscretions and, and give him this sweeping, I forgive you. Yeah, I mean, I guess forgive I don't... Forgive you even before you ask for forgiveness. I don't disagree that she made the wrong choice or any of that. I'm just saying that in her, in making the wrong choices and backing herself into like a sort of corner, it makes her a more human, a more interesting character, more sympathetic. It makes her more like a living character within the book. Okay, I think we might just be using terms yeah, differently. I, I think I'm, that's I'm, probably what we are saying. Yeah, I'm not saying she's less of an interesting character. Um, I'm talking like more in psychological terms. You know, when you end up in a codependent relationship or one person loses right. their okay. All right. loses their sense of self and he's Got dominating. Yeah. I'm, I'm sp speaking more in those terms. Okay, I'm glad I but asked them. I'm glad less, I clarified that. She's less of a distinct, independent human being separate from him and his needs and more like an appendage to him. That's how she read to me in, okay. in, in these seconds. Okay. All right. So sorry to interrupt. I just want to clarify that. Oh, no, no, that's fine. No, I'm glad. I'm glad that we, we, you gave me a chance to define. I'm well aware that I often use words differently than other people use them. So I appreciate the, when I'm asked to clarify, um, and we know in this section, because he tells us that really there's so much evidence that Mr. Wilcox is not repentant. He, he starts thinking of all of it as I sowed my wild oats before I met Margaret. And just like in his mind, Forrester tells us, skips over the fact that, well, it wasn't actually wild oats. You were married. It was adultery, right? But it's all like, back when I was a young man, I did some crazy things, but now I've settled down for this woman. You know, that's not even reality. Like He's just changed the memory of what happened. And she's let him do that. So... Mm -hmm. When it, when it comes to this moment with Helen, it read less to me of I'm choosing my sister over my husband and more of I have choosing finally, myself. Over, yes, I'm choosing yeah. myself. I'm finally reached the tipping point. I have a say. <laughs> Helen has a say. We are not you. You do not. This is not a decision you get to make. Yeah, and, she, and when she pushes Helen in and locks the door, she's, she's attempting to protect Helen from these men. That's what she's doing. I mean, she's not in that moment trying to disobey her husband. At that point, she hasn't done anything but go along with him, even when her conscience is afflicted. Her conscience the whole time mm. is saying, don't deceive Helen, don't trick her. She even says, when she participates in the deception, she says, now I know what Mrs. Wilcox felt like to be deceived. Like she, she, she has this moment of this is not right. I am going along in something that is wrong because he's mm -hmm. my husband and I'm letting him take over. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah. So for me, it felt like she finally finds her voice again and says, no, this is not right. What you two men want to do to my sister and I will protect her from you. Um, yeah. You know, and there's that very specific moment where things get ramped up within her. Um, in chapter 36, they're standing outside the door or whatever, and it says that it's when Henry, the doctor, is asking about, um, about, about her and was everything normal and all that, and um, had anything occurred that was likely to alienate her from her family. Nothing answered Margaret, wondering what would have happened if she had added, though she did resent my husband's immorality, 
Yes. And then, and then, and then Henry says, she always was high strung, a tendency to spiritualism and those things, though nothing serious, musical, literary, artistic, but I should say normal, a very charming girl. He's kind of dismissing her, you know, he's like being, mm-hmm. it's con- there's the condescendence again, but that condescendence in a way that like just makes you less human, as you said, less of a person. And then, then you have this moment. Uh, this is towards the end of 36, by the way. Margaret's this anger. This is 35. Oh, I'm sorry. Way. I'm sorry. Yeah, 35. Margaret's anger and terror increased every moment. How dare these men label her sister? What horrors lay ahead? What impertinences that shelter under the name of science? There's the uh, some of those ideas we were talking about earlier with the Enlightenment and all that. The pack was turning to hel- turning on Helen to deny her human rights, and it seemed to Margaret that all Schlegels were threatened with her. Were they normal? What a question to ask. And it is always those who know nothing about human nature, who are bored by psychology and shocked by physiology, who ask it. However piteous her sister's state, she knew that she must be on her side. They would be mad together if the world chose to consider them so. Yes, and I wrote yes, exclamation point together. in the margin. I love that. Because Margaret realizes that they're dismissing her. I mean, we've said all along, Henry doesn't know who Margaret is. And here she's listening to him condemn the things in her sister that are also true about her. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it was very eye-opening to hear him be like, so dismissive of the things that are fundamentally who she is. Tim, I want to turn to you here for a second. I want to put your, I want you to, I don't know, pretend you're the, you're Henry and you're the doctor here. Do you think that, um, one of the things I wrote in the margin here is, do you think that Margaret's anger, her, um, her terror is totally right? Like, is it all, is it all earned? In other words, is, um, Henry, or are Henry and the doctor being as sort of monstrous as Margaret and to at least some extent the narrator want us to believe? Um, it, and I guess another way of asking... Am I answering this, that? Yeah, go ahead. Well, again, another way of asking this is you can put yourself in his shoes, I suppose. But another way of asking this that I've been trying to think about is, is Henry, is there anything, like, is is there good intentions in Henry that he doesn't just, he he is so lacking, he is so deficient in some area that he cannot... Um, express them properly um or is he just sort of is there nothing good about him is he just sort of a caricature um how, how would you answer that i think that he thinks that he's doing what's good and right but his <laughs> capacity to empathize and like imaginatively imaginatively enter into margaret's heart and Helen's is he's handicapped. I mean, he and the question is like, well, did he choose that handicap or did he just sort of acquiesce to kind of a cultural expectation? That's a hard one to answer. I don't know that the book answers it. Well, maybe the book does answer it because the fact that that Margaret is barring men and not just her husband and the doctor seems to me like it's it's a he's just absorbed a cultural habit. It's, it's deeper than a habit, a cultural expectation, a cultural norm mm. that I think Margaret would say, and I suspect Forrester would say, is just immoral. It's, it's just not, it's just um, deprived or completely malnourished. It has no... It just, there, there's, I <laughs> express it. Well, well, let's let Forrester express it. Cause here's the line. This is what, this is what, uh, 
it's the narrator, but I think it's probably Margaret's perspective. So he, so Henry handles this problem like a business problem, right? And he, and so um, I'll come back to this in a minute. But it's not just men against women. It's also two different views of reality, right? So he's handling it like a business problem and a modern man. And you also have the whole doctor midwife dichotomy, which you see in a lot of literature at this time too, right? Is it has then when childbirth gets preempted by male doctors and they think they know how to handle this instead of the female midwives. There's a lot of layers of tension going on here. It's not just like male, female marital relationship stuff. It's a whole like social thing. But so when he goes into business mode of how he's going to take care of this little Helen problem, the narrator says, and the plan that he sketched out for her capture, clever and well-meaning as it was, drew its ethics from the wolf pack. <laughs> yeah. Which, which yeah. Uh, comes back in the section that I was just reading because it says the pack was turning on Helen. That's yes. Margaret thinking the pack was turning on Helen to deny her human rights. And it seemed to Margaret that all Schlegels were threatened with her, which I think, by the way, that to deny her human rights, that's a really well crafted little phrase because you could be mm-hmm. saying to deny her, her human rights, the ones she already has, you know, like as a human being, or it's just to deny her human rights, like as in the general human rights, the mm-hmm. idea of human rights in a general way. Mm-hmm. So I like, there's like a, it's like hovering on the edge of being applied to a real person. And then on the other hand, it's like abstract, the things versus ideas sort of mm-hmm. sense. Anyway, carry on. It, a question that occurs to me is, and I don't know that it's a solvable question, is how much is Henry, while being clearly in the wrong, how much of his being in the wrong is a volitional choice and how much of it is just um, passive? Just He's just gone, which I would argue just going with the flow, just doing whatever you have seen and heard go before you. And this is like, this is the, this is the dilemma of being, of trying to be a good person is that you constantly have to check as exhausting as it is to see if the things that have come before you that you have absorbed, if they're good things or bad things or things that, you know, are some mixture of both. And it seems like Henry has just, he has done none of that work. I would agree with that. Uh, And I I think it goes back to this idea of only connect and that Henry doesn't connect things. So he's not doing the work of seeing the connection and seeing the whole. He just, whatever part is in front of him, he just responds to that part like you're supposed to respond to that part. And he's not asking questions or seeing how things fit together. For example, not on the very smallest level, not thinking how anything critical I say about my wife's sister in front of my wife, she might very well take as a criticism of her. Like he didn't see the connection Mm -hmm. between these two women. He failed to see there's a connection. She does not fail to see that. She immediately feels under attack. And she says, were they normal, right? Not was she normal. They, us are, is he, he's Mm. attacking us, right? So she connects, he doesn't connect. And so that's the that's the bigger issue. Now, I'm not ready to say Henry is evil. I mean, he's, he's not active enough as a character to be, yeah. to be evil. He, he, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. There was a, little bit, of, there was a little bit of uh, lag there. So I thought you were done. Uh, that's one of the things I've been trying to, to, to kind of work out is 
whether or not Henry as a character, like whether or not maybe one of the flaws of the book, if such as they are, is that um, Henry is too much of a character, a caricature or like an archetype. Like he doesn't, he's not like, like the, he's, there's not enough depth to him to really feel anything, but sort of, you know, like, why are we going to feel sympathy for him? We're not going to mm-hmm. feel sympathy for him because his wife stood up to him because he was a jerk, you know? Like, because it's because his wife, I mean, he didn't care about his previous wife. I mean, there's just like, there's not a lot there to make you feel a ton of sympathy for. Do you agree with that, both either of you? Is that true? I do agree. I think I've been struggling so hard to figure out what goodness is it that Margaret sees in him that she's drawn to. Uh, the only thing that was said in this section is he's got kind of a boyish charm about him. And when they described him that way, in contrast to Tibby, I was like, well, that's the first I've heard that he's charming. I must have missed that. <laughs> Tim, do you agree? Like that there's not a lot of depth there to, at least in terms of that would cause you to feel sympathy for him. I do agree. And I also agree with you that he's sort of not um, deep enough to even call him an archetype. However, I do think he's representative. There's kind of a difference there that seems important to me is an archetype like Odysseus, the trickster, you know, classic archetype. Yeah, that's of the kind trickster. of why I, used the, I was kind of emphasizing the word caricature a little bit more. Right. Yeah. 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 So caricature the word that I'm using is he's a representative of a yeah. certain, I, I keep thinking of it as um, British new money uh, maleness is, is kind of like the, the caricature that I keep seeing in him. And maybe it's broader than that. Maybe it's, um, I don't think it's as broad as just to say he is representative of kind of like, masculinity or something like that but i think there's probably somewhere in between that you know he's just an english chap who doesn't think about the way to live his life i think mean, that's too specific like he's not it's self- too narrow he doesn't reflect you mean he there's no yeah he just doesn't of... reflect okay. so i think he, yeah he's a he's a caricature he's a he's a representative of a very popular um type of person that was living at that time. It's obviously still with us today. Do you think that's a flaw, either of you? A flaw in the, in the book. In the writing of the book? Mm-hmm. It kind of depends on what force is trying to do. I agree. I feel like you got to wait to the end. And then once you got the end, then we can say, okay, no, he didn't he didn't create a character that would act this way. Like, you know, but we can't can't mm-hmm. know yet. Okay. He has seemed pretty consistent to me. No, that's true. Forrester or, uh, or Wilcox. Henry, he's acting, yeah. I think, exactly how this kind of man would act. Agreed. I also think it's important to set this book in, in a little bit of context. And so in, in the Victorian age, a lot of books that had this kind of conversation would, would be called books that dealt with the woman question. Um, and so you had what they call the new woman. And the question was, what do we do with her? <laughs> uh, and, and in particular, she was responding to this very enlightenment Rousseauian idea. So Rousseau comes out and basically infantilizes women, right? And says they don't need to be educated except in just enough of a little bit of everything to make them charming and delightful, but don't give them any kind of real education. So a little bit of drawing, a little bit of French, a little bit of piano, just, you know, 
just a little bit, just to make her fascinating. Um, but don't give her anything real because she's really just an overgrown child. This was the Rousseau idea. Um, and so then you have all these Victorian writers responding to that, showing uh, in all the different <laughs> manifestations that they do, how problematic that is, how damaging it is to women, that women have a full humanity. They're made in the image of God and they deserve a full existence. They're not just a childlike appendage for to delight a man. Uh, Mary Wollstonecraft uh, wrote a vindication of the rights of women, particularly to challenge Rousseau. She argued against Rousseau's view of women and said that that was more consistent with the women in a Muslim harem than it was for Christian women meant to be the helpmeet of their husband. And, and, and this gets labeled as feminism. It's, it's really actually very conservative, right? Women are human beings made in the image of God. And we have to be able to have our full humanity. We, if, what does it mean to be a helpmeet? Not to be a childlike toy for a man, but to be an actual human being who can help him, right? So she, she makes really was writing today. in like the 1790s, right? Right. Uh, she's Mary Shelley's mother. And so oh, she, yeah. she, she died in childbirth, but she, um, she's making what would today be considered an almost old-fashioned argument for the full education of women. So, so you have all these women who want to vote and want to have an opinion and want to be more than just the angel in the house, which was the Victorian archetype of what a woman was supposed to be. Uh, so, so all of these conversations would be in that context. What do you do with a Margaret? What do you do with an artistic intellectual woman who's strong and independent? I mean, and, and we see her in this section just calm. trying pretty much <laughs> which is what pretty henry much. does right margaret yeah. you look upset well thank you for that yes I, you, I just you put the, the be calm and carry on poster up in her bedroom in your exactly exactly you put it on an index card a calling card you keep handing it to her but um so yeah that's that's the context here there's a whole tradition of books asking the question what do you do with the new woman. What do you do with her? And so in these chapters, we see her very much trying to make herself the perfect little Edwardian wife who just lives and breathes for as an appendage of her husband, right? So I want to be clear that what I'm talking about in these chapters is not that Margaret has become Henry's helpmeet. We don't actually see her helping him do anything. We see a very Rousseau, she's not even a full person, she's just his appendage for him to kind of show off. He's not using her in, okay, it's like, he's got this intelligent wife who reads. He's not sitting there and asking her for a conversation where he's using her intelligence in that way, right? It's just, in that cute? She reads books. My friends are super impressed by that. Like, that was so insulting. Mm -hmm. So incredibly insulting. Yeah, like you that say way. it about your six-year-old. Yeah, yeah, my wife reads books. Ha ha ha! You know, it was just, it was just horrible. It was horrible. So that's that's the context of this of this question of what what do you do? And then, of course, the other context is the question of the fallen woman in Victorian literature. So you have all of these stories about what do you do when a woman, uh, quote unquote, falls? Okay, in other words, when she loses her virginity outside of marriage, and that would have included uh, being a servant girl who's seduced by. Um, uh, a, a master, right? That, oh gosh, everything from Pamela on and on and on are books about that. Uh, girls who are raped, um, girls who are seduced, uh, over and over, it just shows they have no choices. They cannot recover from this, that, that, that the man, so you see this in Tessa, the D'Urbervilles, right? The man can go on. He's fine. The woman is ruined forever, typically ends up as a prostitute. Um, and that is of course what Helen says in, in this character, but in this, in this section, last section about Mrs. Bass, right? Like yeah. Wilcox, you ruined her. Now she has no choices. She's just going to become this problem 
that you're going to then speak out in parliament about, we got to do something about this problem, but you guys are creating this problem. So there's the fallen woman question. And so then now Helen herself becomes the fallen woman in this section. And so you have everybody just going into, you know, we got to, we got to fix this. Right. And she's, she's, she's dealing with this, uh, uh, again, and, and I also, again, so we're moderns and I mean, you can't turn on the TV for five seconds without hearing the word sex or something about sex being discussed. And so we might miss. Do we need to put a disclaimer back. here for people who are listening we, with their children? We might, uh, we might, I was just thinking that we might need to go back to the beginning and put a disclaimer <laughs> there. Uh, but cause I always forget, I always think I'm talking to adults, but, um, in this section, we are going to miss how shocking his language is here if we don't understand the context. So at this time in history, it was absolutely the height of impropriety to in any way reference anything about, you know, sexual intercourse, to even hint at it. And what I'm talking about is you could not say master bedroom because someone is going to then think bed and then what happens in a bed between a man and a wife, like, okay, you, you have to steer so far away from that propriety says that's why they used to have skirts. I'm not even making this up. Victorian skirts on piano legs, because that might look sexual. You could not reference a woman being pregnant. The whole crinoline fashion statement that queen Victoria, queen Victoria thought the pregnant body was disgusting. And so she had the crinoline invented, which is that huge hoop skirt thing. So that the pregnant body could be hidden in your fashion, right? Because somebody, I didn't know that. Yeah. So because somebody, oh my might, goodness. Yeah. So somebody might see you be pregnant and then think that person had sex, right? Can't have that, right? So the whole everything is about how repressed can we make this and pretend none of this happens. So for Forrester to have Margaret be like, you know, you can't even talk about sexual matters. Like he's just, I was, I was like, whoa, he just used that word. Like <laughs> they're having a conversation about his mistress and like this is this is not something that would have been discussed at all it's 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 shocking and revolutionary next thing you're going to tell me angelina is that babies don't come from storks oh they do tim oh no, good oh my gosh it scared me i have that straight from queen victoria <laughs> <laughs> it makes me wonder if she's the one like did she propagate the stork she story might have well, that's why you went into your confinement. I mean, you know, how, how, how much can we talk about pregnancy without talking about pregnancy? She's in her confinement. That's what they'd say. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to find the line yeah, um, about too. where it says the sexual matters, but, um, and in the next section, it's going to, it's going to come up a lot, but is it in 31? Well, yeah. Think yes. In a I long letter, she pointed out the need of charity in sexual matters. So little is known about them. It's hard enough for those who are personally touched to judge than how futile must be the verdict of society. Then she goes on and on to talk about morality and standards. This was not something you would have found in a book at all. In fact, I used to always make the joke that in a Victorian novel, when they would tell the story of a fallen woman, you, always, you had to have a pregnancy because that would be the evidence of her fall, right? But how do you write about a pregnancy in a world where you can't talk about anything that might be a hint of alluding to sex? So this is how it always right. goes in a Victorian novel. And, she, and he looked at her. A few months well, later, she discovered she was pregnant. Like, it's always like <laughs> uh -huh. her belly grew with child. And you're like, but all they did was look at each other. Like, that's, that's, that's. 
it's always how it goes. Well, you know, this this whole thing about the the sort of well, I'll just kind of keep going with the term you're using the fallen sister thing is also an ongoing motif you know even in books that we've read mm-hmm. even pride and prejudice um i think sense and sensibility yes. right um goes far beyond you know 1905 um what do you think do you think that that he is playing off that motif in in this uh, and that he's responding to that in a sort of modern fashion oh absolutely he's challenging it absolutely i mean the whole bloomsbury group challenged it they challenged the fallen sister motif? Oh, no, the uh, the way society handled it, the double standard, the hypocrisy that a man could take. And it was expected that a married man would take lovers. I mean, we have to, you know, that's part of the context, too. That was an expectation. And they're, oh, gosh, I could launch into a huge explanation of why that was. But a lot of that had to do with the fact that um, propriety in a married woman required her to be passionless and that uh, conjugal relations was not something she was going to want. And so it was expected he was going to get that elsewhere. That was not considered part of her duties. Because remember, she's just, a, she's just a kid. She's just an infant. She's just a plaything. What a dreary, what a dreary life. Yeah, well, I'm surprised that I mean, yeah, culturally, culturally. Oh, it is. It's a mess. So you had, so pornography ran Modern pornography was invented sure. in Victorian England. Okay, it, it was invented there. Prostitution and syphilis. Just oh, there's so many books where these characters end up getting syphilis. It was just it was rampant. You know, there's famous there's famous story. The famous story of Jane Carlyle, the poet. You know, on her deathbed, the doctor goes, "Yes, put a warning at the beginning of this episode because now I'm getting going." But. Uh, the, the, the famous story is that the doctor goes to examine her on her deathbed and comes out and tells her husband, your wife is a virgin. And he says, of course. Stop it. No. Oh, my gosh. Because she's the angel in the house. He's this carnal yeah. beast. She's this spiritual creature. She's going to bring this moralizing effect, which Margaret buys into that a little bit, right? She does think she's going to have a moralizing effect on Henry. So Forster's definitely playing with this idea that of course he's going to go and sow sow his wild oats but she's going to be this paragon of virtue Mm. and then of course now it's flipped on its head because helen has fallen and what is margaret going to do about that so okay (laughs) then it's putting it's what is margaret going to do about that (laughs) but it's also it's creating an interesting sort of uh well it's creating an interesting problem obviously but think if like on the one hand we've got henry who had his you know, indiscretions and then Helen who has hers and she sides, she's like essentially sides with Helen's, but in neither case is she terribly overly critical of them. So we criticize her for not standing up to Henry. Should we also criticize? I mean, I haven't kept reading, but let's just say through this point, um, she also is not like she's coming to her sister's defense. So should we criticize her for that as well? Um, or is, or, I mean, is your, your answer is probably going to be just keep reading, but um, should we be prepared to criticize her if she doesn't, if she doesn't also, if she also doesn't criticize her sister, just as we did with Henry, or because of what you're describing now, should we have, should, is it right for her to have more sympathy for her sister than, and, you know. Well, it's not the her. exact same situation since Mr. Wilcox committed adultery and we don't even no, know I, yet the circumstances sure. of Helen, but yeah. 
Well, I, and I, yeah, I get. It. I know that they're not the exact same situations, but it's clear that Forrest is setting up these two problems. Yes. Oh, oh, yes. We mean to connect. Yes, we mean to connect them. What are we supposed to have? Like, how does she respond to these two different things? Like, that's one of the big, yeah, you know, problems central to the book. Tim, what do you think about that? I mean, should should we be prepared? Like, should she be criticized if she does? If she, if we're going to criticize her for the way she deals with hen, hearing about Henry's indiscretions ten years later, should we also criticize her if she doesn't? If she supports Helen? say something about yeah. yeah. I feel Tim on the tightrope here. <laughs> I'm just going to start walking, and Angelina, try to steady me if I. Uh, get too far off balance angelina might push you off (laughs) she might go ahead i think i have this firm opinion in my mind i'm over here like don't call on me i don't know what to say (laughs) all right you're next then so (laughs) out of the two options (laughs) yeah i am absolutely in a mix about it i i don't know so can we kind of like step the question back about just first of all, was Margaret right to kind of like turn her husband aside and to side um, almost unilaterally with Helen, at least through 36? And that's, oh my goodness, man, am I really going to step into this? Oh, do it. There's undoubtedly all of our sympathies are meant to side with Helen. Right, and all Agreed of our sympathies are meant to <laughs> break with Henry. You know, there's just nothing about him that we can find sympathizable. He's he's just he's a villain. You know, he's a very mild mannered, respectable business villain. Um. Oh, David, I just we're don't even, know. We're even, they're even set. You know, at the end of 36, they're even set in conflict with one another, where he says that um, he had a vague feeling he must stand firm and support the doctor. He himself might need support for there was trouble ahead. Like there's, yeah. this, there's this conflict created between he and Margaret. So they're, they are at odds with each other. And now you use the word villain, which is obviously your, an extreme version of it, but right. you know, they are at odds. They're no longer like, she's no longer trying to walk in lockstep with him and create union or harmony between them. That's right. That's right. right. But, and but again, he's chosen to align himself. He's chosen with, to align himself with like the other with the pack. guy in the room. Right. Yeah, with the pack. So, I mean, all that has happened up to 36 is Margaret has backed out of the plan. That's all that has happened. She got new information. Now she knows her sister's not crazy. So she's backing out of the plan to have the doctor examine Helen. That's all that has happened. At this a specific, point. And a specific kind of doctor. Yes, right. So she so she pushes Helen in, closes the door, and basically says, "The doctor can go. We don't, Henry. We got. I got this. The doctor can go." So I mean, yes, he's anticipating something larger is going to come from it. But but this is really all that has happened up until thirty six is that Margaret has backed out of the plan. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 And it feels like there's something momentous on the horizon. Yeah. Yes. Well, but we, don't, we don't know what it is. The narrator is giving us so much of their two inner... Well, definitely. And this is the life. first time she stood up to Henry. So, I mean, yes. Forgive me, but I will not. I mean, this is the first time she's... <laughs> she said anything. 
So, okay, I'm going to ask you the question then that I asked a minute ago that you said you were <laughs> unsure on. Do you, do you think, I mean... I tried to qualify by saying she's not really doing anything except backing out of the plan. <laughs> but, but, I mean, that's why I said, should we be... If, okay, let's say at this point, pretend you haven't read it. If she doesn't, isn't critical or, of Henry, of Helen, should we criticize her? I mean, the, all the negatives are getting confusing here. If she doesn't criticize Helen... Should we be prepared to criticize her much as we criticized her for not criticizing Henry? <laughs> okay, so here's how it works out in my mind. I never thought that she should, you know, string Henry up by the toes because he cheated on his first wife. She's right that that was not an offense against her. My concern was that it has revealed a character of him and she should not be willing to marry a man with a questionable character. So that's very different from the situation with Helen where Morgan's not going to marry her. This isn't. It's not the same sort of thing, right? She's right. going to be the sister. She doesn't want to. She doesn't want to reject her sister on the basis of the fact that her sister has fallen. And just to be clear, society would have required that. Helen, there's lots of Victorian novels where basically you're dead to the family now, right? We had a sister. Now we don't have a sister. So Helen's. Oh, we don't know yet what Helen's plan is. So I'll leave that alone. But uh, the the social expectation is that they're going to make this little problem go away. Mm-hmm. for the sake of the of the Wilcox family name. So, um, I, I, so, I mean, I guess your question is, should she condemn what? Should she condemn Helen's indiscretion? And should she also condemn Wilcox's? Well, I don't, I, well, I don't, I, I don't never thought about whether or not she, question. okay. <laughs> my question I don't is think what? she should have married Mr. Wilcox because he's the kind of man who cheats on his wife. And for me, that's a line that cannot be uncrossed. So okay. that's, that's how it worked out in my mind. So one of the things is, as you were speaking that I was thinking about how she, one of the reasons she was willing to marry Helen, I mean, to, to marry Henry is because she felt like she could change him. Right. And so it makes me think, you know, there's got to be some kind of like, and you know how she's, she kind of like ran the house. There was this very like authoritarian maternal thing about how she, her relationship with her siblings and the, the home and all that kind of stuff. And it feels in a sense like that's kicking in, like almost like she's oh, a absolutely. mom defending she wants a child to rescue Helen. Absolutely. more than a sister. Yeah. And so she prob- if she doesn't condemn Henry, it's probably because she feels like she can change him. So if she doesn't condemn Helen. It's probably probably because she feels like she can be like uh, the protector, the, I don't want to say the changer, but you know, the one who can help resolve the situation and bring harmony to it. Um, would you agree with that? I do agree that she's in protective mode. This is, she's not making any kind of philosophical comment at the moment. Mm-hmm. No, I, I don't really mean, I don't really mean she just, she, as soon as she saw that Helen was pregnant, that's it. The instinct kicked in to rescue her from this doctor. Mm-hmm. Do you think that? Yeah. You know what what I think? I love your question because we're still, I mean, you asked it 30 minutes ago and we're still kind of like dancing around it, you know, because it's, it's such a, a, it's a quandary. It is a, it's a really hard question to answer. Part of, part of what factors into it for me is this. Helen, what Helen did is absolutely a mistake. She made a bad choice and she's now like, she's going to have to live with it. With Henry, though, it feels like a systemic problem, not a like, um, when he, when he had the mistress, it was not that he just made a one time, um, 
he made a, a bad choice. It's that it's just kind of indicative of his total being. It's a systemic issue with Henry. And it feels like with Helen, it doesn't feel like there's a systemic issue in her heart. It feels like she made a mistake. She made a, made a bad mistake. Yeah, it's hard to imagine Helen giving the, I just sold my wild oats speech. That right. She, that's Rock not who did. she, yeah. Because she does seem to be dedicated to goodness on some level. She, we've, the narrator has shown us that. And Forrester is very interested in exploiting this particular double standard. That a man can sow his wild oats and move on, everything's fine, but the, the price, the burden on the woman, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a ruined life is what it is. Hmm. She, Helen doesn't want to be separated from her family. She's trying to spare them her yeah. ruin. Yeah. Which, and with I mean, in Prime Prejudice, you see that, right? Lydia, Lydia's ruin is enough to have ruined the chances of her sisters ever getting married. That's how... Hmm intense mm -hmm. the scandal is and that's not as bad in 1910 as it was in 1810 but it's still heavy it's still heavy enough to be a family scandal and she she's doing actually the noble thing here by wanting to leave her family out of it yeah you guys this may take us far afield and maybe this is a discussion for another we time need to wait you guys time <laughs> I know we're running out of time. Let me just plant this. We can, we can dismiss it if you'd like to. But have you guys thought about the similarities between Henry Wilcox and Troy and Jaber Crow? I haven't, but go it ahead. It crossed my mind earlier in the book. They strike me as the same man in different centuries. Hmm. Both completely unworthy of their wives? <laughs> well, unworthy of their wives. And also the thing for me is that they would be they could be worthy of their wives if they had just a shred of the faintest desire to self-scrutiny to look at themselves to look at what they've inherited to look at kind of like the the, the kind of things that they have just absorbed and continued to practice Troy yeah anyway they strike me as such similar men but i think though that troy and jaber crow to go back to what david was talking to is a little bit more of a caricature and henry is more of a caricature but i think that that is um my suspicion is that our author is deliberately making him a caricature because he has broader goals than just um the novel forrester is deliberately making him a caricature and i feel like wendell berry was not making troy a caricature because they have slightly different goals hmm. i could see that yeah yeah um well there's this whole section in uh in one of the chapters where it talks about london like as a caricature um and that you know that we don't have time to talk about it but it does seem like he's tying um he's tying henry to the place if margaret you know we, we talked i talked earlier about the house the disintegration of the house being kind of sort of representative of the disintegration of relationships of people mm. the same way it seems like maybe henry's representative of london or london of, of henry in a similar well, yeah, way that modern, the contrast. yeah sorry go ahead. go ahead well i was gonna say there's something similar about troy to his time and place that he's representative of in contrast with Hannah, um, 
uh, Henry. Uh, yeah, in, well, in contrast to Jaber and and uh, Maddie and Jaber Crow. I just think it's interesting. I'm flipping for that, that quote I was looking for, and I was reminded that he draws the contrast between London and the English forms, and he says, yep. on an English form, you could see life as a whole. And in London, you can only see it at parts, so you can connect. It's easy to see, she says, all men are brothers because of that. But there's somewhere where it says, here it is, marriage had not saved her from the sense of flux. London was but a foretaste of this nomadic civilization, which is altering human nature so profoundly and throws upon personal relations a stress greater than they have ever borne before. Under cosmopolitanism, if it comes, we shall receive no help from the earth. Trees and meadows and mountains will only be a spectacle, and the binding force that they once exercised on character must be entrusted to love alone. May love be equal to the task. It's a fantastic paragraph. The things that root us are all gone. And so now love, love is the only thing left. Hmm. It can't, it can't bear that weight. I think Wendell Berry has said something pretty similar to that. <laughs> USA's. Huh. Yeah. Notary likes this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and when he, uh, in, uh, oh shoot, what chapter is it? Uh, I can keep flip chapter 34 is the part where it talks about London is a caricature of infinity. Um, the, oh yeah! The mask fell off the city, and she saw it for what it really is. And it seems like, in some ways, the mask is falling off Henry and off all these different people around her, and she's beginning to see them for what they really are—not just the place, um, not just London, but also the countryside, Howard's End. She's seeing that in the way that it really is, instead of the caricature that she had always always thought of it as a city city girl, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. She, in the same way, she's the mask is falling off Henry. And the mask is falling off, you know, all these other relationships, um, the familiar barriers, the streets along which she moved, the houses between which she had made her little journeys for so many years became negligible suddenly. Um, but anyway. Um, and I don't know if this exactly connects to what you're saying, but I'm sure if you give me enough time, I can figure out how to connect it. But at the beginning of chapter three is that great paragraph about how England doesn't have a great mythology. Yeah, and it's yeah. waiting for that supreme moment that the poet to come out and give it its story. This is this is what Tolkien and attempted. This is completely and ignored Chaucer and Shakespeare. Well, but but it's what they have all. But but it's true though that English literature is dominated, unlike the Greeks who have their great epic of nation making. But English literature is dominated by this almost relentless quest that somebody's going to write the great English story. So, Spencer tries, Milton tries, Tolkien tries. Everybody, it's it's like we do with the great American novel. I mean, they're mm-hmm. still doing it, and everybody's trying to write the great English yeah, it epic. Turns out maybe right, it's not possible. the mythos. Maybe it's not. Well, that's why I love that he says there are better still a thousand little poets. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it was just, it's interesting that he, that he mentions it, right? Because, I mean, that is true. And, and it is connected that England doesn't have a mythology. He says they're good at witches and fairies, but they haven't moved beyond that. I still haven't figured out everything I think about that paragraph. That was a lot. That was great. Yeah, it was, there's a lot of opinion in that paragraph there from who, whatever narr- whichever character is supposed to be or whatever narrators. We don't even know who, which character, narrator, who knows. Well, <laughs> which of right. our narrators, multiple personalities. <laughs> yeah. Well, we have been going for quite a while. We should wrap this up. Do you have either of you any final thoughts before we, uh, you know, head off and get ready to read the last last section of the book? None for me. None for me. None for me either. My apologies if children were listening. I try to be as euphemistically as possible. And I only just 
got to the tip of the iceberg. I'm telling you, I did my master's work on this. You have no idea how messed up the Victorians were. We're, (laughs) You want to know why America had a sexual revolution in the 1960s? It was because of the Victorian era. I'm telling you guys, you're wrong if you think the sexual revolution was a a revolution against Christian morality. It was not. It was a revolution against Victorian prudism to the point where you didn't even have conjugal relations with your spouse. Okay, I mean, this is how far they took it. Of, of course, the, we're going to reach the tipping point. And people are going to be like, "This is crazy." <laughs> these things, these eras, these eras and things are also tied together. You know, like I firmly believe that transcendentalism, for example, is an American response to Puritanism. Mm-hmm. I could see and, that. And That's a fascinating. Yeah. And then Mark Twain is a response to that, leading into the like the early 1920s and then the post-war. Like I think you can. There's like a through line through all of these things, um, and uh, the same thing. You know that you, if you, you could take the Victorians to you know up through Forrester up through the 1960s. I mean, these things don't happen in a vacuum. You know, cultures, cultures, societies right. don't change. Don't you know have revolutions you know in a vacuum centuries and decades of work um which is why i suppose people talk about how the classical education renewal is it's a multi-generational thing right that we're mm-hmm. like yeah. two to three decades into right now um well hey l- before we go i want to just let everyone know that we have a um we have a brand new edition of our magazine coming out in the next month or so. So if you are interested in signing up for that, you can head over to surseymagazine.com and click the subscribe button and you can get that sent to your mailbox. If you've already subscribed, uh, you do not need to subscribe again unless you moved, in which case it's probably a good idea to just resubscribe with your new address and it'll override the previous address, assuming you use the same email address. Um, So, you know, check that out. It's going to be, it's kind of, we have an 8,000 word interview that I conducted along with Martin Cothran and Graham Pittman with Wendell Berry. And in that interview, in the interview, he references this book. Um, So uh, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to, thought it'd be good for the show. Um, So if you are interested in reading that, we also have an interview in there that I did with uh, Sarah Rudin and Emily Wilson, who were the first women to translate, um, the Aeneid and the Odyssey, respectively, and that's a really oh, interesting wow. David, well conversation done. about. Excited about that. Yeah, they talk a little bit about being the being you know being women in in that sort of world, but also then a lot more about translation and um, how it's kind of an act of love to to translate something. Oh, um, that's awesome. I haven't read it, but um, I was talking to Wes Callahan. I'll just name drop. I was talking to Wes Callahan about the new Iliad uh, translation. Which which one of them did that? Is that the Emily? Or um, the Sarah. Emily. Well. Sarah Rudin did the Aeneid and Emily Wilson did the Odyssey. Okay. Well, whatever the new Iliad trans... Isn't there an Iliad by a woman? I don't know. Am I just making this up? Never mind. I don't know. Never mind. I was talking to Wes about... uh, Never mind. This story went nowhere. Forget it. (laughs) Sorry. Next. Well, so Graham told me to remind you that Angelina wrote a great article for the magazine, but that he decided we should probably delete it because the font you chose was too loud. So... uh, Comic Sans again? Yeah. What's up? Comic Comic Sans is tough for the body of an article, so... A little unreadable. All caps? So. All caps? Will that work? I'm just screaming at our yeah. readers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just constantly screaming. There's like exclamation points at the end of every sentence. All right. Well, I guess that's it for this week's episode. Again, we're going to finish Howard's End for, for next week for the first episode of March. Angelina, thank you. Tim, thank you. for uh, Thanks to everyone who's been listening. Thank you for the people who have been contributing to the conversation online. And of course, to everyone who is a supporter on Patreon. We're really grateful for that. 
For Angelina Sanford, for Tim McIntosh, and for all of us here at the Soci Institute, I'm David Kern saying farewell here on Close Roots. Thanks for listening. Happy reading, and we'll talk to you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.